Citizen Journalism, LA Times Lies, Political Party Central Committees, Lies About Tucker. I'm Mark Paquita, and we'll explore these topics and more in today's seventh episode of the Unite American Show. Welcome. I hate those who lie especially those who take advantage of their positions of trust as leaders of organizations, publishers, and members of the press. And misrepresentation, hyperbolizing, or exaggerating are forms of lying. And boy, do I have a great example of that here. Omar Rivero is one of those liars. He founded Occupy Democrats, an American left-wing media outlet built around a Facebook page and corresponding website. Established in 2012, it publishes false information, hyper-partisan content, and clickbait. Posts originating from the Occupy Democrats Facebook page are among the most widely shared political content on Facebook. Occupy Democrats was established as a Facebook page in 2012 by Rafael and Omar Rivero, A corresponding website was later created. Its stated objective is to provide a counterbalance to the Republican Tea Party. In September 2022, Occupy Democrats was accused of raising almost $800,000 for its election fund and donating none of the money to federal candidates and of donating $250,000 from the fund to Blue Deal LLC, a company owned by Rafael Rivero. In response to the accusations, Omar Rivero claimed that the fund operated as a super PAC and was barred from donating directly to candidates and that none of the money given to Blue Deal LLC had gone to him or Rafael. Axios journalist Lachlan Markey said that the election fund was actually a hybrid PAC and thus could donate to political candidates. Let me translate. Occupy Democrats is a scam, in my opinion, of course. In a recent tweet, liar Omar Rivero referenced an article in the LA Times, another one of the liars, written by a so-called journalist named Christian Martinez, yet another of the liars, a leader who is a liar, promoting the lie of a publisher who publishes the lies of a journalist, lies of exaggeration. I checked out the study referenced by Martinez in his LA Times article. What a fraudulent con. Using an academic's argument from authority and the pretext of legitimacy that comes from a study being peer-reviewed, published, and or accepted to be presented at a conference or gathering of some of those very same peers. You can download a PDF of the study I did. It's only a few pages. The link will be in the show notes. I urge you to read it. The study looked at accounts on Twitter and from the study of users who posted hateful tweets one month before and after Musk's purchase and measure their daily rates of hate speech during the same time period. They picked hate-mongering accounts to measure increase in hate speech. With loosened moderation to stop censorship, what other result would a reasonable person expect? A little more hate speech from accounts already spewing garbage to allow tens of thousands or even millions of others to speak freely? I'd call that a reasonable trade-off. 
They also looked at the volume of what they call hateful tweets. Then we measure the overall volume of hateful tweets throughout 2022. To determine hateful tweets, they look for any tweets containing a list of 49 words compiled through some subjective harvesting process from conversations on Reddit. As I read the academic mumbo jumbo, the words are listed at a link that will appear in the show notes. There are two key figures in the report, at least in my opinion. The first shows hateful tweets, the author's definition using the 49 trigger words, over time, versus all tweets on Twitter. The second shows the change in the volume of hate speech by the set of accounts selected for having posted hate speech prior to Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. Unless I'm interpreting the results incorrectly, the number of tweets defined by the authors as hateful prior to the purchase of Twitter by Musk averaged about 75 out of about 83,000 tweets, or a ratio of 0.0009 or 0.09% hateful tweets, that means they comprise less than one-tenth of 1% of all tweets on Twitter. This is based on the author of the study, the authors of the study, their numbers. After the purchase, it looks like this increased to about 140 tweets out of about 110,000 tweets, or a ratio of 0.0013 or 0.13% a little over one-tenth of one percent of all tweets on Twitter. The second figure shows that the ratio of hateful tweets to all tweets posted by the hateful group users went from 0.0015 to 0.003, or from 0.15% to 0.3%. Please remember, these numbers were taken the month just before and just after the Musk purchase. How much work do you think could be done in the first 30 days after purchase while Musk was busy firing thousands of Twitter employees, figuring out just how bad the code and the censoring really were, dealing with the Twitter files, firing Jim Baker, and then getting his developers to make the necessary changes which implies software development or maintenance time. After all, systems don't code themselves yet. I think we would all agree that this was the worst case scenario. And even in the worst case scenario, less than three-tenths of 1% of all tweets on Twitter contained a subjective hate speech term. In an image, this kind of hyperbole, this kind of exaggeration, This kind of catastrophization is dishonest. It's lying. It's trying to induce false fear, anger, and or panic. It's also hate-filled. It's exactly what the same assholes did to us during COVID. Don't fall for it. If you've been watching or listening to this show, you know I've talked about critical concepts and critical strategies we need to understand and deploy to take our freedom, rights, and republic back. I won't belabor these. To catch up, you can check out those segments in prior shows. 
I review these concepts and strategies every show because they're important. They are at the core of the work we must do to save our country. The critical concepts are statements of fact I feel we all need to understand and agree on, if not 100%, then 80% or more, to have a place where we're all on the same page, a starting point, if you will, from which we can make plans to get to where we want to be, to actualize the changes we know in our hearts, minds, and souls need to be made to fix America and take back our freedom, rights, and republic. They are... 80% of American voters are disengaged or apathetic. I've labeled this segment of Americans the unenlightened. The 80% unenlightened get whatever political news they do consume from left-leaning and very left-leaning news outlets. They're good people getting bamboozled, and they're often naive. Social media doesn't reach much of this 80%, if any, It's an echo chamber for the 20% who are engaged and most, if not all, can't be persuaded to change their position with facts, data, and logic, even if their positions are factually incorrect. We talked about our current breed of elected politicians about whom we must agree. We're fighting the uniparty. It's not R versus D or conservative versus liberal. It's insiders, them, versus outsiders, us. It's also a fight of good against evil. And it's a rigged game. The insiders are playing on an unlevel playing field. The next concept is that 80 to 90% of the people in elected office today are bad hires. We elect stinkers, as I like to call them by falling for their acts, their facades, and their caricatures. We must, by default, not trust any of them and make them prove themselves with their actions, not their words or their acting. And finally, we must understand their number one priority is re-election. Sometimes it's the only priority. We must view everything through this lens first or we'll continue to be swindled and bamboozled. The critical strategies we've discussed so far are we need more primary election competition, steel sharpen steel. We need county and state party organizations to commit to not make primary election endorsements of candidates. Election, not selection. We need to take back our county and state party organizations. We can't do the first two critical strategies unless we do this. We also need to assure our elections are safe, secure, and fair. Election integrity requires we, you and me, to get involved. We also need a massive amount of citizen journalists to counter the mainstream media. We haven't discussed the way to execute the strategy item of taking back our county and state party organizations. We'll do this today in the next segment. We'll also start to explore the newest strategy introduced, citizen journalism and citizen journalists, in another segment of today's show. Most Americans have no idea how the political party they support is organized. It's not complex, but party insiders like to keep it a secret so grassroots Americans don't get involved. This way, they can control us from the top down, rather than the way it should be, us controlling things from the bottom up. There's a lot of secrecy, 
There's lots of deception. There's lots of tricks. And there's lots of rigging and manipulation. The way for us to fix this is to get involved. And that means some of us need to get elected. But don't let the E-word scare you off. It's a teeny tiny election. Seriously. Political power in the United States of America starts from a small elected position in what is called a party's central committee. It is the smallest but a very important elected position in our representative constitutional republic. In the U.S., our local party organizations can exist, depending on the state, at the legislative district, county, city, ward, and precinct levels. Some local parties are extremely vital, providing the link between average people and parties. In addition to fulfilling basic election functions, they sponsor public affairs programs, provide services to senior citizens and young people, and organize community events. In most states, the smallest party organization is the County Central Committee. It consists of elected representatives of a single precinct, several precincts in a ward, or less frequently as representative of an entire county. How your county central committee for your political party of choice is structured is important to know, but the most important thing is knowing that these positions exist and that you must run for them as one step in taking back our freedom, rights, and republic. Let's use an example of county central committees that have representatives from each voting precinct in the county. The number of members to the central committee for each county is dependent on the number of precincts in the county. If you have a small county with 20 precincts, your central committee will be 20 people. If you have a big county, your central committee may be over 500 members. Each member represents the voters of their political party in their precinct. In Ohio, a precinct has about 1,400 voters. If all voters in a precinct registered with a party affiliation on a 50-50 basis, the central committee representative for that precinct would have a constituency of 700 people, but it's actually half that or less because of independent voters. Central committee elections are done during primaries when voter turnout can be low. Some central committee members win with less than 100 votes, some just a few votes, and many county central committee seats go unfilled because nobody in the precinct chooses to run, which is a shame. You run for these seats by getting ballot access. Ballot access refers to the basic rules and procedures that regulate whether and how candidates or political parties will be presented to voters for electoral consideration. In other words, ballot access is a process through which you must qualify and or register to have your name appear on a ballot. There is a process for this. It doesn't just happen magically. Like most processes, it's time bound. There are deadlines and due dates to achieve ballot access. There's also the possibility of running as a writing candidate. Here in Ohio, to get on the ballot for a county central committee seat, you must use either Form L or Form M. Form L requires you get five signatures of registered voters of your party in your precinct. Form M requires no signatures. You just fill out the form, submit it to your board of elections before the deadline, and that's it. Which form you use is determined by the county central committee in question. 
The reason I went into details on the process of the forms here in Ohio, which is not that different than any other state, is to show you how easy it is to run for the smallest of elected offices in our great republic. I will provide more information on running for your county central committee in future episodes, as well as discuss the state party organizations and how you can get involved with them too. What do county central committee members do? County central committee members choose party officers, frame and adopt bylaws, provide for the endorsement of candidates for public office, provide for the selection of members to the county board of elections, make appointments to vacancies in public and party offices, and otherwise provide for all party activities of the election to public office of all candidates representing the party and its ideals. They may also do community events, outreach, and participate in volunteer opportunities. If you're big on election integrity, you'll want to understand how your county central committee can play a massive role in securing our elections. County central committee members are the point people to members of their party in the political subdivision they represent. They inform voters on candidates and their qualifications, make available and distribute party slate cards and candidate literature, as well as yard signs and other campaign items. They may also recruit poll workers and poll watchers in coordination with the County Board of Elections and engage in get out the vote, known as GOTV efforts at election time. What you can do with and for your County Central Committee is limited mostly by your time, imagination, and their bylaws. County Central Committee members possess an active and real stake in determining who our elected representatives will be and are the closest link to grassroots voters whose will shall be sovereign in a republic established by the consent of the governed. So, please consider researching what it takes to run for Central Committee seats in your county, research the ballot access process, and consider running. We'll talk much more about this in future episodes. With Tucker Carlson's departure from Fox News, we are seeing an accelerating decline and disintermediation of the legacy mainstream media. Trust and viewership in mainstream media has been eroding for some time. This is not new news to those of us who have been red-pilled, yet 80% or more of American voters still get their news from the mainstream. But this is changing. The disintermediation started with cable TV and cable news and accelerated with the Internet. Disintermediation is the removal of intermediaries and economics from a supply chain or cutting out the middleman in connection with a transaction or a series of transactions. Instead of going through traditional distribution channels, which had some type of intermediary, such as a distributor, wholesaler, broker, or agent, companies may now deal with customers directly, for example, via the internet. In news, we went from network news to network news and cable news to network news, cable news, and internet news. In terms of print, we went from newspapers to internet versions of legacy newspapers to web-only news sites and lots of them. 
We're now entering the era of independent news teams, independent journalists, and citizen journalists, where the lines between what we consider journalists and ordinary citizens reporting news or opinions gets mighty blurred. If you haven't heard, Fox News fired Tucker Carlson, the person with the most watched segment on their channel. There are all kinds of rumors as to why they made what appears to be a bad business decision, but that's not my point in bringing up this move by Fox. I bring it up because this could be the biggest thing to accelerate the move from controlled mainstream media to the wild, wild west of independent news teams, independent journalists, and citizen journalists. Tucker made a video on Twitter, the first since his breakup with Fox News. I want to play you a piece of it. It's a great setup for further discussion about citizen journalism. Take a look. The other thing you notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see on television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. In five years, we won't even remember that we had them. Trust me, as someone who's participated. And yet at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, the undeniably big topics, the ones that will define our future, get virtually no discussion at all. War, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, natural resources. When was the last time you heard a legitimate debate about any of those issues? It's been a long time. Debates like that are not permitted in American media. Both political parties and their donors have reached consensus on what benefits them, and they actively collude to shut down any conversation about it. Suddenly, the United States looks very much like a one-party state. That's a depressing realization, but it's not permanent. Our current orthodoxies won't last. They're brain dead. Nobody actually believes them. Hardly anyone's life is improved by them. This moment is too inherently ridiculous to continue, and so it won't. The people in charge know this. That's why they're hysterical and aggressive. They're afraid. They've given up persuasion. They're resorting to force. But it won't work. When honest people say what's true, calmly and without embarrassment, they become powerful. At the same time, the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. Where can you still find Americans saying true things? There aren't many places left, but there are some, and that's enough. As long as you can hear the words, there is hope. See you soon. Tucker's correct. We need vigorous debate about serious topics, not arguments about boys and girls sports. That's stupid on its face. Or whether it should be a criminal offense to dead name someone. Again, moronic to even have to mention here. This won't happen by the mainstream media suddenly getting it. They need to be replaced ruthlessly by truth tellers like Tucker, Dan Bongino, Matt Tybee, Jordan Peterson, Glenn Greenwald, Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, and others. The mainstream legacy media need to be crushed, put out of business, because they have no desire to be rehabilitated. They can't. Their demise is of their own doing. And while major personalities and celebrities I just mentioned can do this, so can you and me. I'm doing it. The podcast you're watching or listening to is me doing it. And if I can do it, you can do it. Pick a lane and start driving in it. One lane to pick is to find lies by the mainstream media and debunk them with facts, logic, and data. 
truth. Another is to find stories the mainstream media is ignoring and amplify them. Copy what others are doing. It doesn't matter if your production isn't great. It will get better if you want it to. Work on that. As you do this, you're doing citizen journalism, and that's a major contribution to society. So take it seriously, but not too seriously, that it's not also fun or rewarding. Having fun will mean you'll stick with it. If it becomes drudgery, figure out why and change course. It's a target-rich environment out there for citizen journalists, so there's a place for you to contribute and enjoy it along the way. Also make sure to share, retweet, pass along not only your own material, your own content, but that of other independent news teams, independent journalists, and citizen journalists. We must help each other promote ourselves. This is essential. Have some courage. Share things that might make your more sensitive friends and family members uncomfortable. Maybe make them squirm. That's the only way we'll get many of them to start to pay attention and ultimately realize what the heck is going on. I want to give you some examples of people doing just this, who you can copy, who are not me. Take Texas Lindsay, for example, from Twitter. She did a great thread on Twitter last week on Harvard professor and department head Dr. Charles Lieber. If you're awake, you'll remember his arrest. According to the New York Times, federal prosecutors said Lieber made false statements to questions about his ties to the Chinese, to the Department of Defense, as well as misrepresented his involvement with the Wuhan Institute, what we've come to know as the leaky Wuhan lab, to officials at the NIH. Here's her first tweet to start the thread. Former Harvard professor who had ties to a Chinese-run recruitment program will not have to serve any more time in prison. A federal judge sentenced Charles Lieber to time served. He spent just two days behind bars, but Lieber will be on house arrest for six months and has to pay about $83,000 in fines and restitution. Prosecutors say the former chair of Harvard's Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology never paid taxes on his salary from the Wuhan University of Technology, which was $50,000 a month. And then she takes us back to when some of us first learned about this in 2020 and expands on the story by tying information together from other sources. This takes nothing more than a desire to search the internet, sift through search results, read what you find applicable to the topic you're covering, and following lots of links to pan for nuggets of gold we call truths. Then the time and writing skills to get it down in an organized form others can understand. Lindsay has become a pro at this. She's also got a substack, as do I, except she's got over 5,000 followers, and I have barely any so far. Good for her. Like her, you should consider a substack too. Think hard about how to reuse, recycle, and repurpose the content you develop. Lindsay's done a great job. Copy her. Another good example of this concept, citizen journalism, is the Arizona Informer account on Twitter, who has taken this a step further and built a news website to further repurpose content from Twitter and vice versa. 
In Ohio, we have a website built through the work of the Ohio Freedom Action Network, or Ohio Fan. It's called the Ohio Roundtable. All of these efforts are works in progress, and through iterative improvement, we'll get better and better over time. In the next segment, I'll give you an example of my own citizen journalism, as I debunk lies being told about Tucker Carlson. I wanted to give you examples of citizen journalism from others, not just me. I did that in the last segment. I had this segment on the lies being told about Tucker Carlson written before I decided to add the citizen journalist segment I just finished. But it's an example, albeit mine, of citizen journalism. So let's take a look. The mainstream media, the mouthpiece for progressives and Democrat politicians in D.C., are lying about Tucker Carlson because they fear him, because he asks questions and exposes lies. One such lie is that he promoted Russian propaganda about Ukraine biolabs funded by the U.S. He didn't, but they are. Let's look at the show he put together that is quite embarrassing to the Pentagon, State Department, Department of Defense, some of our allies, the press, and the Biden administration. We'll do it in segments. This is segment number one. If you had told us just four days ago that the Biden administration was funding secret biolabs in Ukraine, of all places, we would not have believed you. Yeah, I don't think we're going to put that on TV. No, thanks. Then if you told us that not only did the administration fund these secret biolabs in Ukraine, but that they then failed to secure the deadly contents of those labs before the Russian invasion, an invasion they knew was coming, an invasion they helped encourage. If you had told us that four days ago, we'd have dismissed you as a nut. It was just too preposterous. We would not want anything to do with a story like that. There was no way it could be true. It's too far out. In any case, we already knew for a fact that that story was false. How do we know that? Because we read USA Today, America's newspaper. Within hours of the Russian invasion, USA Today published a rebuttal to all those crazies who are yammering on about secret Ukrainian biolabs. Here was the headline. Fact check. False claim of U.S. biolabs in Ukraine tied to Russian disinformation campaign. So if you look carefully at the story, and we did because we were interested, you notice that this fact check was sourced to Ukrainian government unnamed officials and then Biden State Department officials. So these were not exactly objective sources on this subject. But still, the story seemed definitive. It was totally emphatic. Quote, Russia has teamed up with China to further amplify the false claim of U.S. labs in Ukraine. Okay, USA Today says it's Russian disinformation. Maybe it is. On to the next story. But the fact checks didn't stop. That was weird. We kept seeing the same fact check again and again. It was almost like Despite endless official clarifications, some people refused to believe the Biden administration. They preferred Russian propaganda instead. And we assume they must be QAnon members. We assume that because Foreign Policy magazine told us that. According to Foreign Policy, QAnon, whatever that is, was frantically disseminating, quote, false claims of U.S. biowarfare labs in Ukraine. Those labs obviously didn't exist. It was all just another lie from the Russians who lie for a living. Then the European Union weighed up, weighed in, throwing its credibility behind the same claim. These are conspiracy theories, the EU told us. They're lies spread by Putin. An EU spokesman then reminded us that, quote, the credibility of information provided by the Kremlin 
is in general very doubtful and low. And that was good to know. Quote, Russian disinformation has a track record of promoting manipulative narratives about biological weapons and alleged secret labs. The show notes have links to the three news sources, and I use the term news loosely to mean lying propagandists referenced in the segment number one video. But the headlines are just what Tucker outlined. Here's segment number two, where Victoria Newland, Undersecretary for Political Affairs in the U.S. Department of State, confirms the U.S. was funding biolabs in Ukraine, was concerned the Russians would get their hands on what they contained, and wouldn't say they weren't bioweapons or weapons of mass destruction, WMDs. Yeah, we're not going to do a segment about secret labs in Ukraine. The last thing we want to do on this show is traffic in Russian disinformation spread by QAnon. So we took a pass on that story. And that's where things stood until yesterday when we happened to tune in to a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Toria Newland was testifying, so we we're interested. Newland's one of the people who brought us the Iraq War, never apologized for that, and kept getting promoted because that's how D.C. works. Toria Newland is now Joe Biden's undersecretary of state in charge of Ukraine, and she knows a lot about Ukraine. In 2014, Tori Newland engineered a coup in Ukraine in the name of democracy, of course. So she is a highly informed source about Ukraine. So she was having this colloquy with Senator Marco Rubio of Florida during her testimony. And at one point, Rubio took a tack that we were not expecting at all. He asked Newland if Ukraine had biological weapons. We never imagined Ukraine would have biological weapons. Why would Ukraine have bioweapons? So it seemed like a pretty strange question. But it wasn't half as shocking as the answer he got. Watch what Toria Newland said. Does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Oh. Does Ukraine have biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has biological research facilities. What? You mean... Secret biolabs? Like the secret biolabs Ukraine definitely doesn't have? Ukraine has those? Yes, it does. And not only does Ukraine have secret biolabs, Toria Newland said, whatever they're doing in those labs is so dangerous and so scary that she is, quote, quite concerned that the so-called research material inside those biolabs might fall into the hands of Russian forces. Try not to use profanity on the air to describe our reaction our jaws drop. Let's leave it there. Under oath in an open committee hearing, Toria Newland just confirmed that the Russian disinformation they've been telling us for days is a lie and a conspiracy theory and crazy and immoral to believe is in fact totally and completely true. Whoa. You don't hear things like that every day in Washington. Talk about a showstopper. And a dozen questions instantly jump to mind. What exactly are they doing in these secret Ukrainian bio labs? Ukraine is the poorest country in Europe. It's hardly a hotbed of biomedical research. We're assuming these weren't pharmaceutical labs, probably not developing new leukemia drugs. From your answer, Tori Newland, we would assume, because you all but said it, that there is a military application to this research, that they are working on bioweapons. Again, your answer suggests that. 
why would we fund something like that in Ukraine? And why didn't you secure the contents of these biolabs before the Russians arrived as you knew they would? And then why did you go out of your way to lie to the American public about all of this? If the quote research materials in these labs were to escape somehow, and you seem very concerned about that, what would be the effect on Ukraine and then on the rest of the world? How can we prepare for the consequences of that, this thing that you're worried about? Shouldn't we be preparing? Because as it turns out, we've just spent the last two years living with a pathogen that began in another foreign biolab funded by the United States government secretly. So this question is on our mind, it seems fair. Now that's some of what we would have asked if we were US senators, which we're not. Yes, there's a time limit, time limit be damned because this is kind of important. But Rubio did not ask those questions. Instead, he changed the subject and told us once again that Vladimir Putin is bad. Watch. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. <laughs> okay, just get a pen. It's a classic Russian technique to blame on the other guy what they are planning to do themselves. That's what Toria Newland said. We almost laughed out loud. So what you're saying, Toria Newland, if, for example, you were funding secret biolabs in Ukraine but wanted to hide that fact from the people who are paying for it, in whose name you were doing it, then you might lie about it by claiming the Russians were lying about it. In other words, you might mount a disinformation campaign by claiming the other guy was mounting a disinformation campaign. Is that what you're saying, Tori Newland? It's pretty funny. What's not funny is that this is all entirely real. We invited Marco Rubio on this show tonight to tell us what he knows about these biolabs. He declined to come. That invitation remains open. Here's segment number three, where Tucker includes video from a Russian military spokesperson and lies from John Kirby, White House National Security Council spokesperson, who has sold his soul to the devil, in my humble opinion, of course. In the meantime, let's review what little we do know about this. We're going to start with a spokesman for the Russian Defense Ministry on Sunday. Now, we would never do this. We never played anything like this on the show before because, of course, we're Americans and we want to know what's going on. We ask our own officials, the people we elect and whose salaries we pay because it's our country. We don't go to foreign sources because we trust our own sources first. But when it turns out the people who represent us and run our government are lying to us and never apologize for it and doing horrific things in our names, then you have to open your mind a little bit and at least assess what other people are saying. So here was the Russian claim. Watch. During the course of the special military operation, facts were uncovered of the Kyiv regime mopping up traces of military biological program under development in Ukraine, financed by the U.S. Defense Ministry. Okay, so that apparently, we hadn't seen that until this afternoon we started poking around. That may have been the root of the conspiracy theories that the fact checks told us were Russian disinformation. Let's quote it. Military biological programs are under development in Ukraine financed by the U.S. Defense Ministry. That's the Russian claim. Separately, a Russian foreign ministry spokesman said the Ukrainians are working on deadly pathogens including plague and anthrax. Is that true? Now, obviously, we would not take Russia's word for that ever, but we don't have to take Russia's word for that. 
The U.S. Defense Department has a website that contains this media clip about the opening of a biological research facility in Ukraine in 2010. Quote, U.S. Senator Dick Lugar applauded the opening of the in interim Central Reference Laboratory in Odessa, Ukraine this week, announcing that it will be instrumental in researching dangerous pathogens used by bioterrorists. The Level 3 Biosafety Lab will be used to study anthrax, tularemia, and Q fever, as well as other dangerous pathogens. Oh, okay. Then the National Pulse dug up a 2011 report from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences that also explained that the Odessa-based laboratory, quote, is responsible for the identification of especially dangerous biological pathogens. So what we're doing, this is not the first time you've heard this story, we are funding the creation of deadly pathogens so we can study them and prevent people from getting infected with them, maybe? There are lots of examples of this. The U.S. Embassy in Ukraine has a handy webpage explaining that American and Ukrainian scientists have worked on a whole bunch of different experiments like this. Some of the projects include work on African swine fever virus, hemorrhagic fever virus, and various avian respiratory viruses. The interesting thing, the telling thing, is that the U.S. Embassy's website also contains links to fact sheets about America's support for biological research in Ukraine, but all those links are now dead. That's weird. It's our government. We pay for it. Again, they're there in our name, in the name of American citizens, but we can no longer read their webpage? How does that work exactly? They have no right to lie to us. The webpage is archived, thankfully, and the fact sheets show Defense Department funding to laboratories in Ukraine. So that looks like proof. It's not Russian disinformation. It's totally real. Sorry, USA Today, America's newspaper. It's real. You can look it up on the Internet if you want. In the face of that evidence, the Pentagon is still lying about it. And in fact, they're repeating the same unbelievably stupid and now thoroughly discredited lies the fact checkers have told for weeks now. Here's the spokesman for the Pentagon, John Kirby, today. The Russian accusations uh, are absurd. They're laughable. And, uh, you know, in the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. There's nothing to it. It's classic Rus Russian propaganda, and uh, and uh, I wouldn't, uh, if I were you, I, I wouldn't give it, uh, I wouldn't give it a drop of ink worth worth paying attention to. Yeah, but but uh, can you explain to us what it, has there been any relationship between the? We are not not developing biological or chemical weapons inside Ukraine. It's not happening. If I were you. I wouldn't devote a drop of ink to it. First of all, you don't get to make that decision, Mr. Bureaucrat. We have a free press in this country. You don't get to decide. But you'll notice at the end of that, Kirby refuses to answer the question. Has there been a relationship between the U.S. Pentagon and a bioweapons facility in Ukraine? And if so, what is that relationship? That's Russian disinformation. What's the answer? We're not developing WMD in Ukraine right now. Okay, got it. I've included a raft of articles and documents in the show notes that will blow your mind, all referenced by Tucker in segment three. Here's the final segment, segment four. Our government is lying to us about just about everything. There's video from the spokesperson from China that's quite interesting. There's a great statement by Tucker on why he showed video from Russia and China. 
But why are we funding this and what exactly are we funding? We reached out to the State Department separately and they provided us with this very carefully worded statement. Quote, the U.S. Department of Defense does not own or operate biological laboratories in Ukraine. <laughs> not that anyone said they did. Continuing the quote, Under Secretary Newland was referring to Ukrainian diagnostic and biodefense laboratories during her testimony, which are not biological weapons facilities. What's the difference exactly? Continuing the quote, these institutions counter biological threats throughout the country. End quote. So that means nothing. You could describe our nuclear stockpile correctly as defensive. Our nuclear weapons are not designed to preemptively kill anybody. They're designed to prevent other people from killing us. But they're still nuclear weapons. So why don't you stop lying and telling us what's going on here? And why don't you more specifically tell us why you didn't secure these materials? So yes, we're funding secret biolabs in Ukraine, but they're diagnostic and biodefense laboratories that counter biological threats. Okay, if these are purely defensive labs, why was Torian Newland so concerned that Russians would get a hold of the materials from these facilities? Other world powers have come to the obvious conclusion. Again, we hate to do this, but under these circumstances, we asked our own spokespeople, they lied, we're going to the foreign ministry of China, a country we despise. Here's what they said today. They're calling on weapons inspectors to take a look at these facilities in Ukraine right away. Over the past two decades, the United States has been blocking the establishment of a verification regime to the Biological Weapons Convention and refused to accept the inspection of biological facilities within and outside its borders. The move has further aggravated the concern of the international community. We once again urge the U.S. to provide full clarification of its biomilitarization activities within and outside its borders and accept multilateral verification. Oh, they're putting Russian Chinese propaganda on the screen. Yeah, we did. We also put U.S. government propaganda on the screen. And the difference is we expect to be lied to by foreign governments. We're not globalists. We believe in one country. It's this country, the United States. We do not expect to be lied to by our government and we won't accept it. But let's get to the substance of what the Chinese government just said. And we never agree with the Chinese government on anything. But in this case, they make a fair point. We now know that dangerous biological agents, whether you call them weapons or not, is completely irrelevant because they can be used as weapons. Is a gun a weapon? Not when you're quail hunting. When you're in a gunfight, it is. It's a ridiculous semantic debate. Dangerous biological agents remain, thanks to the Biden administration, unsecured in a chaotic war zone. At some point, we need to know how that happened. Who made those decisions? We have a right to know. And let's hope someone in Congress, apparently not Marco Rubio, but someone else, will get to the bottom of it. But in the meantime, we pray that somewhere in the United States government, there is an adult who cares enough to get this situation under control immediately. We still do not have answers to most, if not all of the questions posed by Tucker, and the mainstream media doesn't seem to care. So we citizen journalists need to tell the truth and get people to see it and hear it on the way to putting the legacy mainstream media out of business. That's our show for today. Please subscribe to the Unite American Show on Rumble or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please be sure to give us a like where you can. And please join our email list at unite.gfiohio.com. 
That's unite.gfiohio.com. And follow me on Twitter at mpakita. That's at M-P-U-K-I-T-A. And please remember, unity without truth is conspiracy. Stay safe. I'll see you next week.